We are in Psalm 103 this morning, and I love Psalm 103. It is a, it's known as like a worshiping psalm. It is a praising the Lord for his mercies. And in fact, there's a pastor that I know fairly well, but I really like listening to his sermons. And every Thanksgiving for like 30 years, almost he will read through this psalm because it is just praising God for his mercy and praising God for who he is and praising, God, praising God's character. So I'd like to go ahead and read through all of it so we can get a good a good context of where we're going in it before I get down into the passages. So, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our name, our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, for his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and in its place it remembers no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to his children's children. To such as keep his covenants, and to those who remember his commandments to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voices of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts who minister of his, who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I want to pray and then we'll get into we'll get into the we'll start at verse 8. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for your love, God, and I thank you for your gentle correction when we need it. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be that hound of heaven that chases us down and turns our hearts towards you, Father. And we pray that you would speak through me, Lord, that I would share what it is that you have in your heart. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So right off the bat, it's pretty easy to tell that this is a psalm praising the Lord for his mercy. It goes over and over and over again. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So he is, David is crying out to God and he wants to bless God. I remember when I was in high school and going through a Bible study and I was thinking about all the things that the Lord's done in my life and all the ways that the Lord has loved me. I was thinking like, man, I wish there was something that I could do to bless the Lord. Like the Lord's blessed me so much. 
I don't know what I can do. Like, God's got everything. God's got all that he could ever want or need, and God's given me so much. How can I bless the Lord with who I am? How can I bless the Lord? And I want to do that for him. And here we see David, I think, is in the same place in his life that he is thinking about all of the mercies and all the grace that the Lord's shown him. He's like, man, how can I bless the Lord? He's telling his soul, bless the Lord, oh my soul. I want you to bless the Lord, this soul of mine. And we're not really sure, but there's a lot of scholars that believe David wrote this psalm at the end of his life. And when we stop and we think about the life of David, this becomes even more impressive to me. Because David did not have a very easy life. In fact, there was a lot of things in David's life where I could understand if he was upset at God. Right? We think about all the things that he went through of like David and Goliath, and then the Lord, the Lord protected him. But then after that, Saul, Saul wasn't happy with David anymore. He was jealous of him. And then he should have been the next king. He was crowned to be the next king. They said, we're going to take this from Saul and you're going to be the next king. And for the next however many years, he was on the run with Saul trying to kill him. And we think about all the things that have gone on in David's life, the years of being on the run, the sin, the correction, the discipline, the murder, all the stuff that went on in David's life. And at the end of his life here, he's looking back and he is blown away by the forgiveness that God's given him and the grace that he has in his life. Thinking about, man, all the stuff that I've done. And he's like, I want to bless the Lord. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord and all that is in within me. He says uh, in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. David's talking about how slow God is to anger and how deep his mercy and his forgiveness is. And that's really, that's something that really kind of touched me when I start thinking about the things that I've done in my life and the things that David did in his life. And he was impressed that the Lord was slow to anger and abounding in mercy. And I know for me, a lot of times, I really kind of struggle with this idea of there are evil people in the world, and I don't know how many of you guys look around, but it seems like the people that, that lie, cheat, and steal, and kill get ahead in life, right? It seems like people get away with things in life. I quit watching the news because I was getting, I, I was just mad all the time every time I watched the news, right? I'm a, this, like, everything in the world is wrong, and the government, and taxes, and people over there doing that kind of, I just mad all the time. I just quit watching the news because it always seems like the people that should get ahead never get ahead, and the people that should be judged get ahead in life, and that's what it looks like to me, and it's not always true, but that's how, that's how it, it feels like, and he says, but the Lord is merciful and gracious, and he is slow to anger. He's slow to move in anger. And that's something that kind of brings me a lot, of, a lot of joy, because I think about myself, how many times do I sin on a daily basis, and the Lord is slow to be angry with me? The, slow, the Lord is slow to be angry with me. I had, a, I had a friend for a while. I did youth ministry at, an, at another church in another state. And I did youth ministry for a long time. And it was an absolute joy and pleasure to hang out with junior hires and high schoolers and tell them about Jesus. And I had a very dear friend of mine that I still stay in touch with. He's, uh, he's pastoring in the area that we were from. And he grew up in a great Christian house. And he decided in his teenage years to get involved in the gang lifestyle. And so he helped form a new gang and he got in a lot of trouble. He was, he was stealing all the time. He was getting drunk. He was getting high. He got kicked out of junior high. Then he got kicked out of a couple high schools. 
he got involved in, he was getting involved in, in things that he should not. Stealing alcohol from the grocery stores. He's been in, he would get in arrested every now and then. Then it moved up and he started, um, he started getting into a lot of fights. He started vandalizing things. There were a couple times somebody's tried to, somebody tried to stab him and the police came before they could. Somebody jumped him and left him in a ditch and he said, I don't know who it was. I'm pretty sure it was an angel, but there was this person that picked me up, put me in a car and drove me to my parents' doorstep. He's like, I've never seen that car in the neighborhood before or since, but there we go. He was talking about time, someone, uh, they finally got kicked out of his house when somebody came by and shot up his front house and he's got the front of his house and he was in high school, got a little kid and they said, you're done, get out. We can't have, you know, you're gonna get your sister killed. So my buddy got kicked out of his house and he ended up, um, he got arrested again. He ended up going to a rehab facility that is now closed, but it was in Mexico. And do you all ever see that movie Holes? The Disney movie Holes where it's like, you know, you'd go out to the desert and they dig a hole. He's like, it's kind of funny because that's what we did. You had to dig a hole. And if you didn't finish your hole, you slept in your hole till you dug your hole. And so he woke up with scorpions on him because he was a tough guy, right? I'm not going not gonna to listen to you. So like, fine, dig your hole. And he's like, I'm going to run away. And he said, best of luck to you. It's about 100 miles that way to a town and 100 miles that way to a town. And we're in the middle of the desert. So we'll come pick you up in a couple days. Best of luck if you're going to run. And I, why am I sharing about all this stuff that he did? Well, he realized in his hole that he was digging and it dropped down to about 45 degrees that night and he just had, he had his street clothes and a denim jacket and so he was lying in his hole and he was shivering and he was freezing and he was thinking about where he was in life and where he, how he had gotten there and he was like, you know, Lord, this is stupid. I'm in, my, I'm in a hole because I put myself in this hole and he gave his life to the Lord while he was lying in a hole in a drug rehab facility in Mexico. And the really amazing thing about that is what God did in his life after he gave his life to Jesus. After he gave his life to the Lord, he restored a relationship with his family. He restored a relationship. He, and his, he had to go and write letters, and they let him back in school. He had to go to a continuation school, but they let him graduate. His teacher said, this kid will never graduate. He's... He refuses to want to learn, and he's just trouble, right? He became friends with the police chief and a, lot of the, and a lot of the guys that used to arrest him. He got to know them. They moved. He ended up going to a seminary. He went to a seminary, and he was the youngest person to ever be admitted into the seminary, and he started leading people to Christ and sharing the gospel. And, he, and what was the wonderful thing is people that will never talk to me, right, because obviously... If you just look at me here, there, you can tell there are certain neighborhoods I just don't belong in. And no matter how much I try to fit in, you can look at me and be like, nope, that guy's not from around here. <laughs> like, I, I can't hide it. I'm a redneck. I can't hide it. It's okay. I can minister to rednecks. But he would go back into the neighborhoods that he committed crime in, and he was leading people to Jesus. And the Lord completely restored his life. He went to seminary. He became a youth pastor. Now he's the senior pastor of a church. And I remember hanging out with my buddy, John, and my buddy, and he was so on fire for Jesus. He would tell everyone he could about the Lord. And it was funny. There was, a, there was a, an in and out 
right across the street from our church. In fact, people didn't know, like, oh, we go to Calvary Chapel. Which one? The one by In-N-Out. Oh, yeah, that one. Like, everyone knew because there was an In-N-Out burger right across the street. So my buddy and I, after a Wednesday night service, right, we were over at In-N-Out. It was like 930 at night. We were having a burger. We were talking about church. This car pulls up, and my friend, my friend still kind of looked like he, he belonged in the neighborhood because that's just the way that he dressed. So he looked like he was from the neighborhood. And somebody pulled up and said, hey, man, are you holding? And my buddy John looked in his car. He's like, yeah. And he got into his car. And they pulled off. I was like, oh, crud, I'm going to have to call the cops. John's going to get stabbed. Like, this is not good. So he gets in this guy's car that was asking if he had any drugs to sell. And about 10 minutes later, I went to go look for him. And this guy is in the front seat of his car crying. John's holding his Bible. And this guy's just holding him like, what the heck? He's like, oh, yeah, he used to go to, he used to, go to another church years ago. And he's been partying and doing drugs. And, and he's feeling bad about it now. He's going to come join us in church on Sunday. What the heck, John? Like, this guy's like, do you want to buy drugs? You get in his car, and 10 minutes later, he's coming back to church next week. Like, all right. There was another really good friend of mine, and he was the guy that was selling the drugs at the high school. We had a great youth ministry, and it was funny. People were... People were a little, like a lot of parents, they were a little unsure about the youth ministry, but when they found out that I was homeschooled, you know, they're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll let the kids come up there because, you know, we know Justin, he's safe. And I'm like, you do realize, though, that the guys that are better at this were the ones that were the drug dealer and the gang member. Like, they're way better at this than me. I trust them before I trust me. But so my buddy, my other buddy had a similar story. He was the one that was distributing drugs at his high school, and then he got caught, and he got arrested, and he went to jail, and then he got out of jail, and then he met Christ. He flushed all of his drugs down the toilet. He never did anything again. The God miraculously took away the cravings for him all, and he, he ended up going to the same seminary. He ended up becoming a pastor. He ended up becoming a missionary, and he, he passed away in his, his mid-30s of cancer, but he was a wonderful man of God, a wonderful man of God. God took people that were people that you and I at one point maybe thought like, God, why are you, why are they getting ahead in life? Why aren't you judging these people for the things that they're doing that's wrong? And I love it. When we go back to verse 8, verse 8, he said, the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in his mercy because the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger, and he's abounding in mercy. In Luke chapter 15, verse 4, and I love this verse for this particular reason, too. He said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go look for the one that is lost until he finds it? So when I'm thinking about verse, I'm thinking about Psalm 103 in context here. I'm thinking about this verse. He's saying, Lord, I want, Lord, bless you. Like, I want my soul to bless you because you are amazing. You are slow to anger. You're so full of grace. And for a, a lot of times I think about um, the injustices that I see and I'm like, God, why aren't you doing something about this? And I think there's a lot of times the Lord is slow to anger because he's giving people every opportunity they have to repent and come back to Jesus. It's like, man, I'm not striking them dead because I love them. I love them, and I'm going to give them another chance. I, maybe one, just one more try. Just one more chance. Come on, just, just another chance. Just another chance. I remember uh, I was talking to a friend of mine right after, um, right after the news came out that Osama bin Laden had been shot. 
and we all remember Osama. We remember, we're coming up to September 11th, and we know that uh, Osama bin Laden was the man they said was the mastermind behind one of the worst terror attacks in U.S. history. And so when the news came out that the, that the U.S. Navy had finally killed Osama bin Laden, I remember, man, we were, we were partying. We were excited. I was thinking, finally, justice has been done to a man that deserved it. If anyone deserved death, this man deserved death. And praise God that he's gone. I was chatting with a friend of mine about that, and he said, you know, what a shame. What do you mean, what a shame? He's like, can you imagine what kind of impact that guy could have if he would just turn to Christ? Can you imagine the kind of impact a man like Osama bin Laden would have had if he would have repented and given his life to Jesus? And you want to talk about, you know what I said, like the Holy Spirit is a, is a hound of heaven. I think sometimes the Holy Spirit is also a surgical scalpel because that just cut me right to the bone. My thought process of praise God, this evil man's dead, and, and his thought process was, you know, he had been praying that the Lord would convert him and save him from his sin, and I was just, oh, that's the heart of God. That's the heart of God that's coming through in Psalm 103 is like, oh, man, please, please repent. He said, I, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And um, this word strive, you know, if you look up a lot of the words in, um, and I cannot read Greek or Hebrew, I'm not that smart, but I found if I go to blueletterbible.com, there are people that are really smart that will give me the answers to things. So I went to Blue Letter Bible, and I was trying to understand what this passage meant. And they said a better translation for this word strive would be like chide or accuse. Or he was saying, like, he will not always be punishing us. He will not always be accusing us of our sins, nor will his anger last forever. And it really changed the thought of this verse for me. So, you know, I was thinking about it. Um, Jesus is patient but he won't let you keep sinning to hurt yourself. He won't let you keep sinning and not come back after you. You know, he's saying he's really slow to anger and he's really slow to a lot of these things, but there is a point where he's like, okay, this is for your own good. This is for your own good because sin separates us from the love of God. And the damaging effect is like, if you've been in church any period of time, and I've been in a couple, you'll see that sin not only ruins your own life, but sin ruins a lot of people's lives, and I've seen sin ruin churches, right? All of a sudden, something happens, and people that don't really know what's going on start talking about it, and the next thing you know, you've got a wildfire, a gossip, and nobody really has what's going on, but you watch it just divide and conquer, because somebody said something, right? Or one person sins, but that sin maybe will now start affecting their family and affects other people's families, and it affects their lives and other people's lives and their community and their church. Sin's a really damaging thing. And God does not say, I don't want you to do this because I'm a buzzkill. I don't want you to do this because I know this will lead to all this death and destruction. So he, the point of this verse here is not that God is angry, but he's like, I will not let you keep doing this. And we will get to a point where we will now deal with the sin. We will now deal with the sin. Sin separates you from God. And a good father will discipline out of love for a child's own good. It's like eventually we're going to get to a point where my grace is not going to run out, but we are going to deal with what you're doing. And we're going to set it right. Because for your own good, I can't let you keep doing this. And it was kind of funny. I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of a really good friend of mine. And I, I served on a, I worked on a missionary ship. 
and there was a lot of really wonderful people that worked on there. One of the guys that I really, really liked was in, our, was in the engineering department, and he ran, he ran the engine room. He was a good, he was a good guy, ex-military, very, he was a good guy, he was a kind, he was a compassionate guy, warm and fuzzy was probably not the best word, but he was a good guy, and you could tell, especially being ex-military, and it was funny because he expected a lot of people, but he had a lot of people that came to work for him that had never worked in that environment before. And especially, we would, hire, we would hire other people from Africa, and Africa, they have a completely different mindset with the way they, kind of like when you go to Europe, the way that you think about time and the way that you think about things that need to get done, their priorities are different. Here, we're very time-sensitive, time-oriented, time is money. I show you respect by showing up 10 minutes early to a meeting so I don't waste your, like, time is a very important thing here, and to them, relationships are more important Things need to get done before you start work. Time's not a big deal. He would take a lot of these African guys and say like, hey, there is not a lot of opportunity in the particular country that you came from. You can get certificates working on this ship, which means you can work on a ship from another country. Right, I can get you a ticket out of here. You can support your entire family and including your parents and your kinfolk because you can go get a job working on a container ship that sails out of Europe, right? Where more money, you can get on a good ship. And so he would not let, he would, he would be really hard on his guys out of a place of love because he's like, I know if I am hard on you and I whip you into shape, then you can go get a job for a big cruise line company or a big company that sails containers from like, the U, from like China to the US and you could be making real money and you can support your family. So he was a good guy, but he would be really hard on him. And at first, it was funny. All these guys were like, oh, this dude's mean. He, maybe he's racist because he's, he's always hard on us, and he doesn't like us, and he's not going to let us, you know, he doesn't let us get away with anything. He's always snapping at us. And they were really, he was really hard on him, but he was hard on him out of a place that can, of compassion. And after a while, he was their favorite guy in the engine room because he was one of those guys that was like, I know you can do better, and what the heck was that? You are better than that, fix it. And because of that attitude, we had a top-notch crew of guys that worked in the engine room because he would push people to be better than the way they were. And so he was hard on you, but he was hard on you from a place of love. And I think about people that are continually sinning, right? Sinning and sinning and sinning without a thought of repentance, without of, there's a difference between, you know, I screwed up and Jesus, please forgive me. And then I'm just gonna do this anyway. I know it's wrong, but it makes me feel good. I know what God's word said. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to sin anyway. There's a difference between, Lord, I messed up again, and I'm going to do this. The Lord is going to be hard on you and hard on people because he knows your worth, and he knows you're better than that, and I can't let you keep doing this. And it was funny because I remember one day, I was down in the engine room, and a particular guy, they call them watch keepers, your job is to stand in the engine room and watch all the gauges and all the monitors, and if there's a problem... You can try to fix something, but if it's a big problem, you can call the people that are, you can call the officers and we can get it figured out. So the engine room is manned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year on any ship. There is a guy in the engine room watching and watching and watching to make sure that we don't catch on fire or we don't flood or we don't do something. And this guy showed up 25 minutes late for his shift. It's 25 minutes late for his shift. And that means the other watchkeeper, and they work 12-hour shifts, 
he had to work for an extra half hour and couldn't go to lunch or couldn't eat his dinner. And you know, you've got a set period. So they work 24 hours a day. There is a 24 hour work schedule. So this time off is when I can sleep and do my laundry. And he was dressing him out and saying, now I want you to go and apologize to that watchkeeper because he missed dinner. He's got to go reheat. We had him hold dinner, but he's got to microwave his food now and reheat it. And he lost 25 minutes of sleep or laundry because you were late. So, and, and so I, I kept walking through. Well, I come back on Saturday and uh, I come on Saturday and he is down in the engine room. I'm like, what are you doing here? It's not your shift. And he's like, I, I'm giving Jesus back my 25 minutes. And what is it? Because he said, you not only took time from this watchkeeper, but you stole 25 minutes from the Lord. So you're going to give the Lord back his 25 minutes and we need to clean out this tank. So you're going to come down on Saturday. And I thought it was funny because every now and then I would see somebody in the engine room. What's happening? He's like, I, I, I need to give Jesus back his 30 minutes. <laughs> I took him from Jesus. So I need to give Jesus back my 30 minutes. Right. And at first it could seem like a real cruel, heartless, like a real tough, just a mean guy. But then you realize, man, they will fire you in a heartbeat for stuff like that on another ship. And these guys don't have a lot of opportunity in the country that they were coming from. He pushed them hard to study. He pushed them hard to, to change their thinking about time, to, to be more of a Western thinking of time, because he wanted the best for them. He's like, and I'm not going to let you get away with sloppy work because I want the best for you, because I know you can get a really good job and you can take care of your entire family if you can go get a job for Stena Cruise Lines. If you can go get a job on this on, with, with Evergreen and you're shipping containers and you're sailing six months out of the year, you can support your entire family. So I want the best from you and I'm not going to let you get away with it. And when I think about this verse here, we said, God is not going to strive with us forever and eventually we're going to get to the point where there needs to be discipline. That's where my thought comes in. Not anger, like God's not trying to punish me. God's not trying to punish you to make you feel bad. It's like, man, I know what this is going to do in your life, and I can't let you keep doing this over and over again because I know you're better. I know you're better, and I want better for you. And it kind of reminds me of, um, I had some friends that trained horses and some friends that trained dogs, and when I lived in England, I watched, um, there was a lot of sheep where I was from, so they had a lot of sheep dogs, and the sheep dogs, it was amazing. They would just whistle, and they could send a sheep, the dog, like quarter to a half mile away, and just, <whistles> and apparently that meant, hey, go hang a left around that gate, go over there, grab them, circle them up, come back over here, put them in there, and they're just like, <whistles> and that apparently means put them in there, and I was just like, how in the world do you do that? And it was like, well, you know, they, use, um, uh, they used to use more shock collars, and people really had this idea that, like, shock collars were cruel and inhumane. And he's like, no, we don't set them to, like, 10. You set them just to kind of buzz. Because he's like, what we're trying to do is get the dog's attention and redirect him. We're not trying to punish the dog for when I whistle like that and he's running the wrong way. I, told, I whistled, and the dog thought that meant left. So I hit this button just to kind of break him from, like, I need to run left, and he's like, get my attention, and then redirect him to go right. And then he said, eventually, we don't need him anymore because the dog completely understands, right? And I knew some guys that train horses, and they said they have certain bits they put in their mouth that are big and heavy, and they put a lot of pressure because he's like, hey, when you get a brand-new horse, doesn't know what they're doing, you need to give them a little more pressure. Not, not hurting the horse, but you need more pressure to, hey, this young horse never had, we're going to go this way, till eventually you get to the point where they, like, all you need is just like this tiny little thing. You just give it a little bit, hey, we want to go left. We want to go right. 
not the point we're not trying to hurt, we're not trying to punish. We're trying to redirect back the way that we should go. These are the commands I am giving you. This, you need to go this way. We need to stop. We're not going to go over there. We're going to go over here. And when I think about the discipline that Jesus has brought into my life, the Lord has brought discipline in my life for things that I've done, for patterns of sin that I've had in my life, it's less of like I'm being punished for what I've done. More reminds me of someone like, hey, we need to redirect your attention. Every time you go over here, like, nope, we need to go this way. Come on, we need to go back over this way. We're going to redirect where you were going. He said, nor will this last forever. Like I said, the goal is not to punish. The goal is not ev- the goal is to restore you to a right relationship with God. The goal is to restore us. Now we're going the right direction. And it's not going to last forever. And not every hard circumstance in our life is a direct result of sin. Because, like, and I know some people, it's funny. Whenever you preach on something like this, the people that you hope will hear it are not the people that will hear it. And the people that you're not talking to are the people that, are tra- that hear what you're trying to communicate. Right? So, like, there are some people that are like, hey, you know what? God's trying to redirect you, and you need to move over in this direction. You're going through hard things in your life because you're making bad decisions. And then there are some people that, you know, we just live in a fallen world where bad things happen to good people sometimes, and sometimes it's no one's fault that, you know, everyone gets a nail in their tire eventually. Everybody gets sick eventually. And so you tell people, like, man, there's some hard things in your life. Oh, it's because I'm in sin. Like, well, no, dude. Somebody, sometimes you just get a flat tire. Not everything is punishment. Sometimes you just get a flat tire. Sometimes we just get sick. Sometimes the market just crashes. Not everything is God trying to redirect you. But sometimes we're in hard situations in our life because God's trying to get our attention. Say, hey, man, you need to stop and you need to go back in the right direction. It won't last forever. The goal is to restore us to a right relationship with God. Reminds me, one of my, um, one of my favorite books that really changed my views on prayer and really changed my prayer life is a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by a guy named Jim Cimbala. And he ministered in Brooklyn, and he still ministers in Brooklyn. And he ministers in a very hard neighborhood in Brooklyn a very hard neighborhood, and he almost quit being a pastor because he got six people to come to a church and people were throwing rocks through his front window all the time. Very hard church, but a wonderful man of God. And now he has, he has a church where they will have four or 5,000 people come to a Tuesday night prayer meeting. Right? Yeah, you get some people on a Sunday morning, but typically if you have a prayer meeting, that's like the least attended thing that a church will have. But he said there will be five, 6,000 people come out to a prayer meeting because we're going to pray. And one of the things, one of the stories that he shared, I think really perfectly speaks to kind of what this is. He said, um, Jim wrote in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Wire, our, older da- our oldest daughter, Chrissy, had been a model child growing up, but around age 16, she started to stray. And not only from us, but also from God. In time, she left our house, and there were many nights that we had no idea where she was. As the situation grew more serious, I tried everything. I begged, I pleaded, I scolded, I argued, I tried to control her with money. Nothing worked, and she just hardened more and more and more. While this was going on, his wife Carol needed an operation, and during the post-surgical depression that followed, he said the devil took the opportunity to come after and say, you know, you've got a big choir now, you're making albums, you've got an outreach at Radio City Music Hall, Fine, you and your husband can go ahead and reach the world for Christ, but I'm going to have your children. 
I've already got the first one, and I'm coming after the rest. One day his wife said to him, listen, we need to leave New York, and I'm serious. The atmosphere has already swallowed up one kid, and we can't keep raising our kids in this neighborhood. Then in November, I received a call from a friend I had persuaded Chrissy to talk to. He said, Jim, I love you and Carol, but your daughter is going to do what your daughter wants to do. She's 18, she's determined, and you just kind of have to accept what she decides, and you don't have much of a choice. She's just going to be her. I hung up the phone, and I couldn't accept her being away from the Lord. So God strongly impressed on me that I was to converse with no one but God. In fact, I would have no further contact with Christy until God acted. Said so Christmas Day came, and it was nearly impossible to keep my composure trying to open presents with the other children, and my daughter's not here. February came, and on one Tuesday night, during one of our prayer meetings, I talked from Acts 4 about how the church boldly calling on God in the face of persecution, and we entered it into a time of prayer, and everyone reaching out to the Lord simultaneously. An usher handed me a note from a young woman I felt to be spiritually sensitive, and she had written, Pastor Simbala, I feel like the Lord's telling me we should stop the meeting. Pray for your daughter. In a few minutes, I picked up the microphone and told the congregation what had just happened. He said, the truth of the matter is, although I haven't talked much about it, that my daughter is very firm from God these days. She thinks ups is down, dark is light, light's dark. But I know that God can break through to her, so I'm going to ask Pastor Bostef here to lead the rest of the prayer meeting, and, and we're going to pray for Christy, and let's join hands in the sanctuary. He said, to describe what happened in the next few minutes... The only metaphor I can think of is that the church turned into a labor room. There arose groaning and a sense of desperate determination as if to say to Satan, you will not have this one. Take your hands off. When I got home, I told my wife, it's over. What's over? He said, it's over with Chrissy. And I tell you, if there's a God in heaven, this whole nightmare will finally be over. 32 hours later, when I was shaving, getting ready for work in the morning, Carol called to me, and she said, go downstairs, she blurted out. Chrissy's here, and she wants to see you. I wiped off the shaving cream and headed downstairs, my heart pounding. As I came around the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, on her hands and knees, sobbing, and I asked Chrissy, and she grabbed my pant leg and began pouring out her anguish, and she said, Dad, I am so sorry I've sinned against God. I've sinned against myself. I've sinned against you and Mommy. Please forgive me. And suddenly she sat up and she said, but dad, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? And her voice sounded like that of a cross-examining attorney. And he's like, what do you mean? And she said, on Tuesday night, who was praying for me? In the middle of the night, God woke me up and showed me where I was heading. I was heading towards this abyss and there was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened and I realized then how hard I had been how hard I have become, how wrong I was, how rebellious I was. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped me in his arms and held me tight, and he kept me from sliding any further. And he said, I still love you. So, Dad, who was praying for me Tuesday night? <laughs> so I'm talking about the Lord's discipline and the Lord's love and the Lord's chastisement. And I think this perfectly, you know, when I read this, I thought, oh, man, how great that God was answering this man's prayer for his daughter, and I think that's true. But in the light of thinking about God's never-ending, reckless love chasing you down because he loves you and he has grace and compassion, I was thinking, man, this, 
Here's another story of another, of another kid who was out on the streets doing things they should not have been, and God relentlessly, relentlessly, relentlessly was chasing after her, saying, I still love you. Your grace has not run out. Your grace has not run out. I was just um, dove hunting down in Yuma with my family, my boys, my in-laws. My, um, we get, the men get together every year. We go down to Yuma for opening day of dove season. It's kind of a family tradition. And I love the picture of the Holy Spirit being the hound of heaven because if you've ever watched a good bird dog, that kind of reminds me of what it is. We saw a good bird dog, right? Shot a bird, and it, it went down in the field, and that dog took off, and it was diving through hay. It was running through water. didn't matter what was in its way. I am going to get that bird, and I'm going to bring it back because that's what I was born and bred to do. And I know hunting's not everybody's cup of tea, but I was thinking about, man, in the light of this passage, the Holy Spirit is like, I am going to do whatever it is I've got to do to try to bring people back. So when I think about the Lord saying too, like, hey, there's going to be discipline in our life. I won't stay angry forever, but I can only let you go so far, and then I've got to start bringing correction back. Makes me think of girls like Chrissy, that like the Holy Spirit's like, man, I'm going to run you down till you come back because I love you. He goes on to say, and I'm going to wrap up here quickly, in verse 10, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has He punished us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His mercy towards those who fear Him. And as far as the east is from the west, so He has removed our transgressions from us. Saying, man, I have not, even those knuckleheads like me that go through things from time to time because of the dumb decisions I make, it's like, I still haven't even given you what you deserve because I love you so much. You deserve even more than this, but I can't, I love you too much to give you what you really deserve and punish you for your real transgressions. And he said, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is my love for you. And in the Old Testament, they used a lot of hyperbole. And I think one of the dangerous things is like, okay, well, what's like hyperbole? What's like just to try to give us a picture? And what does he actually mean? What, and I think it's a dangerous place to try to get in there and like, what is God actually meaning? But when he says, so high are the heavens above, greater is my love for you. And I looked it up and it said right now that people assume the, unifor, the universe is 94 billion light years is the distance. And... In one light year, light zips through space at 186 miles, 186,000 miles per second and 5.8 trillion miles a year. So at 5.8 trillion miles a year for 94 billion years is the expanse of the universe. The expanse of the universe. That gets to a number where it's just because statistically impossible. Whatever that number is, it's like you know, nobody can ever randomly get to that number. It'll never happen. God's saying that is how much farther my love is for you. So I'm thinking about what David's saying and why he's crying out and wanting to bless the Lord, even though he's gone through so many hard things in his life. He's like, man, I am stopping and reflecting on the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God that is continuing to pursue me out of love. What a beautiful thing that is. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for all that you've done and all that you've given us. And Lord, I thank you for being relentless in your love for me, relentless in the love and in pursuing me. And Lord, I thank you even for the hard times when I do need correction, Lord. It's correction because you want what's the best for us. 
because you love us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in a relationship that is honoring to you. We want that better relationship with you, Father. So if there is sin in our lives and things that need to be confessed, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would show us where that is and that we would turn it to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.